Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Symmetry Project. I'm pleased to have you back with us and uh, excited to introduce you to our uh, virtual studio guest, uh, Jonathan Luckhurst. This is episode 24 in the Summit Dialogue series with a focus on the informals and the upcoming Italian G20 Leaders Summit. Jonathan is a professor of international relations at the Graduate School of International Peace Studies at Soka University in Tokyo, Japan. He's written extensively on the informals of the uh, informal institutions, G7, BRICS, and of course the G20. Um, for your interest, we have at the Global Summitry Project, uh, and that is globalsummitryproject.com, uh, this podcast series, of course, but also the uh, Shaking the Global Order series and the Now series. We have the blog uh, posts on at Rising Brixham, and more recently, uh, we have the outputs from uh, research work uh, that we have been undertaking on the China West uh, dialogue, including some very recent research by Colin Bradford, who is the uh, senior non resident fellow at Brookings and also uh, a co chair of the China West dialogue uh, on strengthening uh, the G20. So, uh, I'm pleased to invite you into the virtual studio and um, introduce you to Jonathan Luckhurst. So, it's my pleasure then today uh, to uh, invite into the virtual studio Jonathan Luckhurst. Jonathan, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Uh, oh, great. So, uh, let's turn to kind of contemporary events here with respect to the upcoming uh, G20 and more generally looking at the informals. But um, just this past weekend, uh, the finance and central bankers, the meeting which is periodic for finance generally on a quarterly basis, they met in Venice and they formally threw their support behind a proposal for a global minimum tax of at least 15%. According, uh, according to the New York Times, each country would adopt uh, and, new, and uh, advance new rules that would require large global businesses, including, of course, uh, the evident uh, targeting in part, the technology giants like Amazon and Facebook to pay taxes in countries where goods or services were sold, even if they had no physical presence, which is a big change for them. So how, do, how significant do you think this disagreement is, Jonathan, and, and whether or not it's going to, you know, win favor at the G20 itself, at the Leaders' Summit in October? Yeah, it, it's a very important development, I think, in, in various ways. I mean, in, for the G20 itself, I mean, it's, it's actually a pretty big agreement in many ways. And compared with recent years, when often the G20 has been criticised from, from some quarters for not being sufficiently ambitious, not achieving enough, becoming more of a talking shop. I think in that sense, this is, if it, if it actually is uh, finally endorsed by the, the leaders at the summit, 
mm-hmm. it would actually be a pretty significant um, boost in many ways for for the G20 in the sense of actually a substantive agreement, um, you know, some something tangible rather mm-hmm. than just words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, I, I noted, too, that there was, you know, support that was expressed uh, for this uh, minimum corporate tax in the OECD, and, and it raised for me the interesting question, is there a kind of close linkage between the G20 uh, leaders or some of the ministerial meetings and the OECD? Is there a reasonably tight relationship uh, going uh, in, the, in the recent past? Yeah, I mean, of course, um, I mean, the OECD, I mean, beginning with uh, the BEPS, the base erosion and profit shifting mm-hmm. uh, agenda, I mean, that goes back to, uh, to 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I think this agreement now, it, it kind of, I mean, it's basically building on, on, on those ideas, the idea of, of preventing tax avoidance or, you know, finding ways to, uh, this this is you know, also another thing can be linked with is is the uh, even what was happening a couple of years ago in Japan in you know, Osaka there was the idea of trying to push this agreement forwards um, and and it seems to have all come together now I, I think in terms of the two agreements on uh, um, on the issue of uh, the minimum tax level I mean that's some people suggest uh, again that it's that it is quite a low threshold at fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was talk about maybe setting it higher. At, uh, what was it, eighteen or nineteen or so? Um, but I think the principle of having a, a basic minimum um, mm-hmm. on, on on corporate tax in order to have that uh, starting point, I, I think that in itself, in principle, is is a good start. Um, and it, it will make some difference. I mean, I've seen some estimates of at least some billions of dollars in tax revenue that will be generated. But I think um, well, we'll have to see going forwards whether that level you know, increases at some point. But, but at the very least, I think it's an important principle, the idea of, of having an agreement that, that reduces um, tax competition, you know, which is an old issue that goes back um, you know, uh, some decades in terms mm-hmm. of this concept of tax competition being linked to uh, economic globalization and, and liberalization back in the 1990s and such. And in terms of, of uh, targeting um, the location of, of profits generated rather than um, the, you know, the tax uh, entity, you know, in, in, in terms of the um, you know the, the possibility of avoiding taxes. You know by registering your company in, in uh, you know not necessarily in the location where you're doing your your business or gaining your revenue. I think that that as well. I mean, obviously that's the other important element. So so these are kind of two key elements that that are in principle and in practice uh, potentially very significant. And I think it's interesting that the G tw- the G seven. Mm-hmm. Reach this uh, this agreement um, in in Cornwall in, in England a couple you know a month ago, and and it was kind of interesting at that, that you know there was some discussion were, would the G twenty uh, be persuaded to to follow that agreement um, to endorse that agreement and and it does seem that that's the way things are heading. I mean, obviously the finance ministers 
and central bankers. You know, at, at, at that meeting, that there was an agreement in principle, I guess, to, and, and putting that idea forward to the leaders. Um, so it does seem that that's probably going to be how things develop, and, and mm-hmm. that is highly significant. So, of course, uh, as you're well aware, Italy is hosting uh, the G20 summit. That's the leaders gathering. Uh, The summit, in fact, is scheduled for Rome on October 30th and 31st. Uh, There's some speculation that the pandemic has allowed them to actually put it in Rome uh, because of the restrictions, which normally would make Rome simply, you know, impossible as a, from security standpoint, uh, from holding such a, such a major gathering. Um, and it looks like this is going to be the first in-person uh, gathering uh, of leaders uh, since the Japanese summit uh, in 2019, of course. And uh, uh, do you see uh, maybe this is the, you know, what we were just talking about, the corporate minimum tax, so this may be it, but are you uh, hopeful that there will be other kinds of significant uh, um, agreements that, that come from uh, the meeting in Rome? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, hopefully it will be in person. Uh, I mean, obviously the, the G7 kind of set, set some sort of standard in that sense. Uh, logistically, as you mentioned, holding it in, in remote Cornwall uh, was, was <laughs> probably less of a, of a challenge in a sense. And, of course, bringing more, you know, three times as many delegations or, or more mm-hmm. uh, is, is going to be a big challenge for the Italians, how they organise that. Um, so, again, it's on a larger scale than the G7 in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, in terms of policy agreements, I mean, one one thing to look at, I think, is how the G20 deals with, um, well, the continuing efforts on the pandemic and, and, mm-hmm. and also looking beyond the current situation, how to deal with the future, um, you know, the recovery and, and, and building resilience for the future, the, the building back better slogan. Um, I mean, you had the Global Health Summit, for example, back in May. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the Emergency Leaders Summit back in, what was it, March, I think, last year. Yep. Um, and then, of course, the Riyadh Virtual Summit. So, I mean, in all of these, these, uh, these G20 uh, meetings, including ministerial meetings, there has very often been some sort of COVID dimension in, in terms of the agenda and this is where the idea of, of let's say, mainstreaming or, or what I would call the, the transversal um, uh, agenda, the, the, the interconnectivity between um, different issue areas and the way that COVID kind of is, you know, the lens of, of dealing with, with COVID-19 is, is uh, kind of uh, going across all aspects of the G20 agenda from tourism to uh, mm-hmm. to finance, to development, to obviously public health. And, of course, it's brought public health into the G20 agenda. So, again, that's another Absolutely. This, another aspect of this um, ever-expanding G20 mm-hmm. agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I think the G20 agenda is, you know, this year and in Rome, interestingly, it, it has kind of expanded in, in the sense of public health, but it, it, it also has that, COVID lens, so that has brought some uh, focus across the agenda in the way that, uh, for example, gender mainstreaming 
um, and some other of these transversal challenges have also encouraged a kind of um, joining the dots approach to, to the G20 agenda and also with joint ministerial meetings. So that's mm-hmm. uh, another in- increasing trend. So I think hopefully in that sense, despite the, the broad range of, of issues on the G20 agenda, hopefully this um, yeah, increasingly increasing awareness of the interconnectedness of policy issues um, I think uh, hopefully does create a kind of symbiotic uh, range of agreements. And, and as I said, with COVID-19, certainly that's obviously going to be a core issue. Mm-hmm. Um, questions remaining about uh, things like the COVAX facility, you know, how, how much actual commitments are going to be translated from words into actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's an area where, again, the, 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 air, the focus is going to be on, on that response on vaccines in particular and, and the situation at the time with the pandemic. I mean, whether or not um, there's a new variant that might be even worse than the, the, the Delta variant that originated in, in India. Mm-hmm. Fair um, enough. Um, so and you... challenges. You've talked about and written about, in fact, uh, this notion that you, uh, the transversal that you mentioned, the interaction of uh, issues, but also you've talked a fair bit about or written a fair bit about the repoliticization of the global governance setting, particularly the G20. And I guess I wanted you you know, to explicate a little bit about what you meant by, you know, what's the practical consequences of the repoliticization for the G20 itself? What's the implication here? Yeah. What really began in many ways, um, I mean, the concept of repoliticization can be taken in, in, you know, in a more, and a layman sense of, of simply an issue becomes more politicized, more, more, um, more of a focus, more contested. Um, but you know, then there's some more kind of um, even kind of post-structuralist ideas about the, the significance of repoliticization conceptually. Um, I mean, in, in a sense, I, I think that the the global financial crisis was really crucial. Um, in in terms of its impact on on various policy agendas, but especially <laughs> focusing on the G20 and its origins, uh, where it was as a leader summit, where it was really focused on the, the global financial crisis, on the global economic recovery, um, mm-hmm. global financial reform. Um, so, I mean, what happened in that moment uh, was that there was a kind of uh, a crisis effect that really. In, in many ways, kind of undermined a lot of uh, conventional wisdom, common beliefs um, about the role of economic policy making, the nature of of economics, mm-hmm. um, about markets, about you know the, the role of the state. I mean, in a sense, that that moment of crisis really kind of. I mean, Alan Greenspan, I think, said you know made the point that the the whole intellectual edifice that he had believed in, in a sense, had, had, had come crumbling down during the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, this concept of repoliticization is that basically in those, in those kind of moments, in those contexts, 
the conventional wisdom uh, really no longer um, constrains decision-making or thinking as much. And so in that context, you get the possibility of more contestation and, and alternatives, kind of challenges to mainstream or, until that moment, mainstream policymaking. And so, for example, in financial uh, regulation, global financial governance, you had the shift from mac uh, microprudential to macroprudential financial regulation in, in that moment, which sounds uh, you know, quite technical and, and, and not really so radical, but in intellectually, conceptually, I mean, it really was quite a radical shift from focusing on, on you know, the micro level to focusing on the macro level. And, uh, and I think that that has had a broader impact on, on global governance and thinking about policymaking in, in many areas. So, for example, ideas about sustainability, Mm -hmm. um, um, and you know, and and kind of ideas about uh, I would say a kind of more holistic approach to uh, to governance in in many policy areas, whether it's uh, development issues, um, finance, um, uh, gender issues, and and indeed now the pandemic. I think that this intellectual shift from looking at the micro level to looking more holistically at the, at the global or macro level, um, I think that is, it, it is reinforced by the pandemic in many ways. So again, I think that, that this repoliticization, it, 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 in some ways, it, you know, that, as I say, we're, we're kind of moving further along that path in terms of the shift that you've seen since the global financial crisis. Uh, and that, that's, you know, that's an interesting aspect, but it also has significant consequences in terms of policymaking. So you sure. hopefully you see then a more um, this more holistic sustainability kind of framework when looking at issues like the pandemic. Although obviously that doesn't mean that you you know that the, the contestation has ended. I mean we saw the last few years with uh, with Donald Trump in the White House that, that uh, with you know, it, we have. It's not as if we we suddenly have a new consensus and everyone agrees, because clearly what what this this kind of populist wave, as some people would call it, suggests that there is there are still kind of competing views. So whilst in global governance circles, I think that more holistic approach has gained uh, a significant influence, uh, certainly in G twenty circles in many global governance networks. Um, but still, you do have these, these kind of populist, nationalist, nativist movements in some G20 members. Um, yeah, and, and then you get countries like the UK where, where it's kind of a almost like a weird mixture where you have um, uh, almost contradictory uh, kind of evidence from the government where, where you have a government talking about global Britain at the same time as withdrawing from the European Union, and then uh, you know certain policies seem to be um, a little bit nationalistic, but on the other hand, they still have uh, support for global climate efforts. So, uh, well, but, at least but, rhetorically, and, and hopefully, yeah. Just, 
but you know, doesn't it make sense? I mean, you talked about the change with the global financial crisis, and the obviously that it was the global financial crisis that gave birth uh, to the leaders' summit. In part, I mean, it was yeah. a, it was the crisis. Uh, but doesn't it now make sense? I mean, when you say repoliticization, um, that you know, now that we have uh, you know political figures gathering on an annual basis that in fact it you know front and center it's the politics that these people bring whether it's a donald trump or or suga or trudeau or whoever right that that you know this is in the political realm and not any longer in the bureaucratic realm which yeah. we had seen before with ministers meetings etc cetera, etc cetera, right yeah, um, and I mean, one one further point, uh, kind of building on what I just said, I mean, the, the, the point about repoliticization is not, uh, I should note that it's not to say that it that it, it's simply going from, you know, one consensus to another, but the point is that the issues have been effectively politicised. So mm -hmm. there is no kind of dominant um, uh, narrative or framework um, for the time being. And for example, Eric Aliner has talked about a kind of interregnum um, since the global financial crisis where there is no kind of resolution in terms of dominant uh, policy frameworks. And, and actually during the pandemic, we've seen this kind of interesting dynamic where perhaps in some cases, uh, depoliticization <laughs> might, might even be preferable. You mentioned uh, in the US and uh, the politicization of, of the public health response. I mean, I think that points to the complexity here. So it could be perhaps, uh, I mean, broadly, I think repoliticization in terms of the opening up of political debate is mm -hmm. often a good thing. But if that political debate then takes a turn for the worse, uh, arguably as happened in the US over the past year or so during the pandemic, then, then that's where repoliticization brings risks. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I mean, of course, as you mentioned, political leaders and bringing in the political leadership of the G20, um, it is, it, I mean, it, it has given the G20 a bigger significance compared with uh, pre-2008, before it became a leader-level meeting. Mm -hmm. With the right leadership, uh, that's where you you perhaps can get more action because mm -hmm. the politicians do have that um, convening authority. They do have that influence, political influence. And I think the difference, so, I mean, many people are, are look to the G20 and say that now it doesn't work as well as it did during the global financial crisis. But I think this isn't really a, the fault of the forum, of the framework, Um I think it's really about the leaders that are there in some ways. So, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, on that final point with the politicization issue, how how much do you think, you know, the, the rising tensions between uh, China and the United States, which has occurred quite evidently within the last few years and certainly – um, you know, with, with the Trump administration now, the Biden administration, how much do you think that um, that such um, uh, that that rising geopolitical tension uh, is likely to impair uh, the G20 activities um, 
and decision making for that matter um, uh, going forward now? Yeah, it's a good question. I think many people kind of assumed that somehow Biden was going to have a much less confrontational relationship with the Chinese leadership than uh, than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, so far, it, things haven't changed radically up until this point. I mean, clearly there are there are remaining tensions, the uh, political tensions over. Uh, well, you know, is- issues like uh, what's been happening in Hong Kong recently and, right. you know, and those other kinds of uh, political issues that the Chinese leadership tends to be very sensitive about. So thus far, there hasn't been a radical improvement. And, and, and that's probably partly linked to or, or significantly linked to, to domestic political consideration. I think for Biden, because of the past few years, because of also perhaps the pandemic, um, because I, I think public opinion in the U.S. towards China is is um, has been pretty, uh, I, I would say, deteriorated quite a lot in recent mm-hmm. years. So politically, it's pretty difficult and dangerous, in a sense, for Biden to be to, to radically shift uh, on China. And, but I don't think that he is um, particularly dovish to use the phrase anyway uh, mm-hmm. in regarding China I think there are he has some concerns um, so it's not surprising that there, there hasn't been a rapid improvement perhaps things might get better as time passes I, I think and interestingly actually looking at um, recent uh, overtures between the Biden administration and the, and the Russians mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of interesting that there, by contrast, um, perhaps there has been some improvement in in the in the ambiance, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that and that's interesting, and, and perhaps that's more uh, more surprising in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, my my general view is that uh, whether it's uh, the Russians or the Chinese, um, I tend to think that that the G20 at least provides a context where there can be some positive engagement on some policy issues. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the, the new tax agreement is, is a case in point um, if, if that is uh, finalised at the summit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, and, and even on, on things, again, like the pandemic um, and, and, and other issues, you know, hopefully the G20... And I think this is one benefit of the G20 is that it does, uh, as opposed to the G7 in particular, it provides this forum where you do get the Chinese, the mm-hmm. Russians, the Indians, and and you know and the other you know the, the various countries there, um, different with with a more diversity in in terms of makeup of the countries, uh, of the governments, um, yeah, and and putting them in that setting where they can have. Um, you know, bilateral uh, pull asides and, and this kind of stuff as well, aside from the official agenda. But even on the official agenda, I think the the and you know the, the constant interaction between ministers, uh, working group members, and, and even with people in the engagement groups. I think my feeling is if if you probably a lot of that stuff is is seen as by some people as fairly 
superficial or um, um, yeah, not 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 always having these big headline breakthrough agreements. But I think having that constant dynamic there, mm-hmm. um, it does provide uh, constant kind of back channels. It provides um, opportunities, behind the scenes opportunities for dialogue. Um, and at the very least, uh, in, in that sense, it prevents a, a, a complete breakdown of, of right. engagement. Um, and okay. so those, those are the kind of benefits that, that maybe you wouldn't notice until it wasn't there. <laughs> so, so let me end kind of in in a in a sense this way. Uh, my my colleague and uh, close colleague Colin Bradford, who's a, a senior non resident fellow at Brookings, and he's co chair of something that I'm involved in as well, the China West Dialogue, um, has made a set of recommendations in the last uh, while, uh, which involve, for lack. Of for, for as a kind of underlying term, strengthening the G20. And you've been just talking about the possibility of continuing discussion where otherwise there may not be any uh, uh, venue. So I guess uh, the, the obvious question might be, uh, first of all, um, do you think it's possible for the G20 then to take on some of these kind of selected uh, foreign policy kinds of issues, which as you pointed out, certainly not there at the time in 2008, 2009, when the leaders summit um, created, it was focused on economic, but clearly we've seen an expansion of the scope of what leaders um, engage in. And of course, there's always the presumption that leaders will talk about what they want to talk about. Uh, it It doesn't matter what the uh, official agenda may or may not be. So do you think selectively taking on some of these foreign policy concerns might be uh, valuable from the standpoint of, uh, you know, kind of uh, global order kinds of questions? Yeah, I mean, in the same spirit as, as what I've just mentioned, really. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at at some examples, if you look at, um, for example, on, what was it, at St. Petersburg, there was the, uh, this, this, Kind of uh, follow-up dialogue on on Syria. That's uh, true. Yeah, there was you know there have been other examples like the uh, in 2015 there was some discussion about the the migrant crisis, the, the you know the refugee crisis, migrant crisis. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I mean there have been some, and you know the engagement groups in in that case also uh, kind of um, put some pressure on on the G20 to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think there is, uh, I mean, clearly some some experience with with dealing with some of those issues now, um, and even on on non you know, non security issues, you have things like um, yeah on, on on climate and trade. I mean, right. these, some of these bilateral tensions we saw, for example, in in Japan. I was at the Osaka summit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in June 2019, and that was, uh, you know, the, the two big controversies there were really about trade and climate, right. and, and it was those kind of, um, some of those tensions on trade, especially between the U.S. and the Chinese. Uh, so, again, that, that you know, those, those kinds of issues, bilateral tensions, can sometimes uh, be resolved in that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in you know in the broader framework of of the the G20 agenda. So yeah, I mean, I think when security issues, I mean, of course, even going back to the early days of the G20, you did have in 2001 this early. Um, you know, when it was still a finance forum, you had the right. money anti-terrorism, um, yes. uh, solidarity in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there is some history of it in, in that sense. So, okay. yeah, okay. I, I think as an on, and, and again, this is where the, the constant adaptation of the agenda, the constant inclusion of new issues, including the pandemic over the past year, um, yeah, I think the G20 is quite uh, adaptive in, in that sense. And again, maybe that's very much to do with its role as an informal forum rather than a, uh, you know, rather than a formal organization. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it is a, it's a flexible and adaptable institution. Instrument, yeah. 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 Uh, and one one last question then. I mean, uh, Colin also in this uh, in his um, arguments about strengthening the G20 uh, also pointed to the fact as uh, that this, as you pointed out, informal um, has a peculiarity, I suppose, for an international organization that is no secretariat. Right. And uh, given that it the host shifts every year from the one member to another, uh, he called for um, uh, at least the creation of uh, some small but hopefully effective uh, secretariat to carry forward issues that occur from one uh, summit to the next. And it's interesting because our colleague, um, the former prime minister, uh, Paul Martin, who uh, was very much involved in its original creation, that is the G20 Leaders Summit and indeed served as uh, as the kind of the head for the finance ministers at, at its initial creation in the ni- late 90s. Um, he, he who had opposed it, uh, a secretary, because he was worried about competition with other institutions, now supports it. What, what's your thought on whether or not that might be a valuable addition uh, in terms of policymaking at the G20 level? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. I mean, it's something I've been thinking about and written about a little bit over over mm-hmm. many years. Um, I mean, it, it, I think in the G20 context, in certainly at the leader level, the, it, this uh, even back in 2011, uh, during the French presidency, David Cameron, uh, surprisingly, David Cameron was asked by the, the French presidency to, to come up with some recommendations. Oh, David that's right. Yes. Of course, UK prime minister at that time. Right. And he he did you know in in those proposals he did uh, you know his staff did suggest uh, mm-hmm. the possibility of a small some kind of small secretariat. Um, I think that that probably is potentially a good idea. I mean, it's it's kind of an and it, again I think it depends <clears throat> in the details how it was you know how it operated. Who right. was involved, and and so I mean certainly the some of the Sherpas. I mean I've done I've had quite a lot of conversations with with various Sherpas over the years. Are these and the personal representatives of the leaders, right? Exactly, exactly, yep. and and mm-hmm. some of them certainly are quite quite skeptical of the idea. I think my impression is that the Sherpas are more skeptical about the idea of having. Um, a secretariat, uh, I, because I think it conjures up the idea of of, of something more like the UN, something mm-hmm. that is you know very um, 
formalized and very uh, set rules and, and more rigid. And I think that's why the Sherpas tend to be suspicious of it. But, but I think if it were something more flexible in terms of some sort of logistical support, uh, in, in that maybe that might have uh, some, some support within the G20 uh, more broadly. But, but I, I mean, in a sense, that's where the, the international organizations, the OECD in some ways, right. the IMF, the World Bank, They've all kind of played that role in some ways, and even yeah, even yeah. more broadly, the the stakeholders and and even even the engagement groups like the Think Twenty, mm-hmm. their work does kind of support the ongoing agenda. And then, of course, you've got the the Troika system of the previous, present, and next um, presidencies, and and they are supposed to provide some of that continuity as well uh, in terms of keeping the agenda smoothly uh, moving from year to year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, at, at the moment, it seems to work. Uh, well, I, again, I mean, whether it does work as well as it should um, might also depend on the annual presidency because that sure. you know, some people put a lot more stress on on the annual pres- presidency and whether the presidency is is moving the agenda forwards whether they are, are positively engaged and forcefully uh, advancing different policy agendas. And, you know, so, so that's another dimension. How much, how much do you need strong leadership from the presidency to, to really have a, a, a strong, successful year? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, personally, I don't really – I haven't – I've never really fully – reached a conclusion or endorsed the idea of a, of a secretariat. But I, I think potentially a small secretariat that primarily was about logistical support rather than, yeah, ra- rather than having a, a, a lot of uh, formal rules for the, for the G20. I think that possibly could work. But then uh, where would it be located? And, and you know, some people have, have suggested somewhere like Singapore, for example, a, a country that has cooperated a lot with the G20 but not a formal member. Others mm-hmm. have suggested it, it should simply move from uh, one presidency location to the next. But then, you know, does that mean you move the staff? And another interesting proposal has been the idea of a virtual secretary. Uh, yeah. so some, some, some suggestions that you, you, you don't need a physical location. It could all be virtual meetings, uh, virtual uh, settings, and then um, obviously you could have meetings at the, uh, at the location where that rotating right. presidency happens to be. Well, and uh, indeed there have been suggestions uh, potentially to house it at least temporarily, if not longer, in, in the OECD itself because of the hmm. close linkage between the OECD in terms of some of these issues. And and the and the leader leaders and the Sherpas, but Jonathan, I want to I want to thank you for um, your taking the time to join us uh, on this uh, podcast. Really appreciate uh, your uh, being with us, and um, uh, I look forward to having you back sometime when we've uh, witnessed the G twenty summit and seen what what the results are. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me.